Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. Uh, if you're looking for the electrical safety webinar, you're in the right place. Just want to allow a little bit more time as folks file in. So we'll be getting things going in a little less than one minute. Again, we welcome everyone to today's webinar. I want to let you know that you are in the right place, just allowing a little time uh, as everyone files in and gets settled in. So we'll be getting things going in about 30 seconds. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Implementing Continuous Improvement in Electrical Safety Against Electrical Shock and Arc Flash, sponsored by eHazard. My name is Kevin Drulli. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health magazine, and we'll be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. We hope, we hope you all are safe and well. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we'll conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and click the send button. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speakers. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey that will appear on a separate screen. We'll let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. You may also receive a link in a post of any email. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speakers today are Zahir Juma and Hugh Hoagland. Zahir is a partner at eHazard who presents ArcFlash safety training, performs ArcFlash engineering studies, and serves as a subject matter expert on incident investigations. He has a master's degree in electrical engineering and is a certified professional engineer. Hugh is a service line manager for ArcWare and founder of eHazard. An expert on electrical arc testing, he has helped write standards for ASTM, NFPA, and IEC ISO to protect against electric arc testing and electrical safety. Zahir and Hugh, we thank you for being here today. Zahir, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Thank you, Kevin. Over the years, we've been looking at accidents and incidents that occur around electricity. And there was one thing that we found in common. Many of these companies have already, uh, do already have systems in place. And one thinks about this and wonders, well, if you have all of these systems, why are these accidents occurring? And that leads us to this discussion on continuous improvement. It is because we are kind of driven, and I'm not saying all of us do this, but what we notice is many organizations are compliance driven. And this fact was brought up recently by one of the um, uh, leading thought uh, um, kind of um, person who, who has been leading thought and innovation on electrical safety, a gentleman by the name of Lanny Floyd, who mentioned, um, who, who mentioned this point again recently. Who, and, and, and what he said is, 
do you know, we're after these checkboxes. And once we get these checkboxes out, we kind of smile and move on. But really, when it comes to electrical safety, if you look at the legislation, if you look at the standards that we follow, all of them warrant continuous improvement. So Hugh Hoagland and I just thought about, hey, you know, why don't we talk a little bit about this? So today's presentation, what we want to do is um, cover the basics of, of electrical safety. What are these electrical hazards? Then I want to put forth a suggested program implementation, which is six points that we'll cover very, very quickly. And then I want to spend quite a bit of time on continuous improvement. When I say quite a bit of time, that's uh, the time within my portion. Before I hand over to Hugh to discuss the personal protective equipment and continuous improvement from a PPE perspective, and then we'll end off with a Q&A session. So as many of you know, uh, electrical safety is regulated by OSHA and they have minimum re uh, requirements. And these are covered both under the general duty clause and under specific duty clauses. And OSHA links very closely to NFPA 70E, although they do not issue citations exclusively based on NFPA 70E, what they do do is they use 70E articles as references to support their citations generally un under the general duty clause. So when we have shock hazards, shock hazards basically means current through the body. And what you have to understand is that this current is not only caused by contact, but very importantly is also caused by approach to exposed energized conductors and circuit parts. All right, um, when we talk about lower voltage, single phase, 120 volts, we're looking at contact, all right? Then the approach kind of falls away. But once you step above those voltages, once you're looking at 208 volts, 240 volts and multi-phase voltages, three-phase voltages, for example, um, in those instances at low voltage, when you get to within one foot, 12 inches of an exposed energized conductor or circuit path, you are exposed to a shock hazard. And then you have another hazard called the arc flash hazard. And those are the only two hazards that we need to be concerned about around electricity. It's shock and it's arc flash, right? And uh, when we talk about arc flash, it is something that occurs when a piece of equipment fails and releases energy. So the question then is to understand this arc flash hazard is exactly when are we exposed to this hazard or when is this hazard present? Well, what NFPA 70E states is that the likelihood of an arc flash incident increases with exposed energized conductors and circuit parts, which basically means when you have a shock hazard, you will have an arc flash hazard, all right? The magnitude of the arc flash hazard can be substantial or it can be marginal or it could be one that cannot cause any harm. And the other instance in which an arc flash hazard exists is when we are interacting with equipment. So this is switching, testing, opening and closing doors and covers. Now, the reason I included switching in here specifically is because one of the big risks that we see out in industry at the moment is that machine operators and plant operators who are not considered electrically qualified, people who have not received electrical training previously, are expected to switch on and switch off electrical equipment and many consultants and many industry um, experts will tell you that some of these machines have the ability or have sufficient arc flash incident energy 
to ignite non-art related clothing. So that's one of the areas that um, requires a little bit of focus and just to make sure that there's nothing slipping under the cracks here. Um, and what NFPA 70E also states, and this is very interesting, is that uh, an arc flash hazard or an arc flash incident is unlikely to occur when equipment is used in its normal operating condition. And the big three that folks talk about is, is it properly installed, properly maintained, and no evidence of impending failure. So I'll talk about proper maintenance in a short while. But remember, the gatekeepers of this is the arc flash energy needs to be greater than 1.2 calories per square centimeter to to be able to ignite general like civilian type uh, clothing uh, and the worker needs to be inside an arc flash boundary for this hazard to be um, uh, present okay once you get outside of the arc flash boundary that means that the energy has dropped substantially and will probably not ignite non-arc rated clothing now what I thought was just putting out a picture and a video here to, to explain what I'm talking about. If you see a sticker on a piece of equipment that says the energy is greater than 1.2 calories per square centimeter, you are going to require arc-rated clothing, all right? And that means from head to toe protection, just giving somebody arc-rated clothing and not expecting them to use any hand protection or head protection is not going to cut it. Hugh Hoagland's going to speak about this in a little while. And then here's a brand new video that we've just worked on recently, um, compliments of Arcware and Kinetrics. Um, and uh, Hugh, Hugh can speak about this a little bit more. But what we see here is you've got two workers. And this is indicative of what we see in many, many industry. You will have an electrically qualified person performing a task, performing specific work. And then you'd have another person kind of observing this work or somebody who's curious that comes over and asks the question, hey, buddy, what are you busy with? Right. And in this instance, what we saw was the mannequin who was completely protected from head to toe that's performing the work didn't receive any burns, second or third degree burns, whereas the observer who's using normal uniforms that's not arc rated had clothing ignition and folks, clothing ignition is the killer. As soon as we get away from the ignition of non arc rated clothing, we are going to start saving a lot of lives from arc flash incidents. Right, so let's jump over to a discussion now on the electrical safety program implementation. The reason I want to talk about this implementation is because we cannot get to continuous improvement before we first cover the basics. And this is a recommendation on a six-step process that we think needs to be in place um, before you can even start talking about continuous improvement. You know, you've got to be brilliant at basics, get the basics in place. So it first starts off with training, create the awareness. You all will get a copy of this presentation, so I'm not going to get into the details and read through all of this, but I've included the details here for any one of you who want to circle back and make sure that you don't miss anything. What you want to cover in your training is the arc flash hazards, the control of hazardous energy emergency response, and folks, as I always mention in my webinars, remember 1910.147 specifically excludes electrical work, all right? They have references that cover general commercial industrial installations and they have another reference for generation transmission and distribution. So please make sure that you are not using your 1910.147 as an exclusive reference for the control of hazardous energy with regards to electricity. Emergency response, obviously very important care and maintenance of PPE, electrical equipment. You will speak about this in, in a short while. And one of the big parts that he's gonna cover is the personal protective equipment. And here's what I wanna get, get across, the message, all right? 
Hands down, our created clothing will beat daily workwear any day. Here, what you see is a mannequin exposed to an arc flash using normal street clothing, or even if it's not street clothing, even if it is industrial type of clothing, but it's not arc rated, what you see is clothing ignition. And once you have clothing ignition, it can get bad or it can get very bad. And Hugh's gonna talk about a fantastic uh, test that he did with three mannequins side by side where he'll talk about ignition versus melting and dripping because you can get bad and then you can get very bad, all right? So when we talk about protection, our recommendation is gonna be try to address at least 80% of your hazards by providing arc-rated daily workwear. And um, the next section is gonna go into this a little bit more in detail, but please circle back and have a look at these requirements because what we see in industry is people use an arc-rated shirt and pants but nine out of 10 times, they are not using the head protection correctly. So it is important that we have a discussion about the safety eyeglasses, the hearing protection, the balaclava, the EH rated hard hat, the face shield, all of those are required. So you need head to toe protection as soon as you step into the arc flash boundary. And remember the arc flash boundary can only exist when the arc flash hazard exists. So you got to do a determination as the employer on is there an arc flash hazard present, yes or, or no. And then you've got to be able to train your workforce. And OSHA is very specific about this. You got to train your workforce to be able to identify these hazards by themselves. Step three is the arc flash engineering study. Because in step two, what we said is, hey, you know, just roll out arc rated clothing. And if you go between eight to 12 calories per square centimeter, you are gonna be addressing most of your hazards. The problem is you're not gonna be addressing every single hazard. And to be able to get to that next level of excellence, you're gonna need an arc flash engineering study. What is an arc flash engineering study? Basically what this means is, it's an engineering study that models all the electrical equipment, all the three phase electrical equipment that you've got in your plant. But in addition to identifying your incident energy, which it does via labels, it has the benefits of identifying protection settings, which is um, sometimes you would notice that you have a small little failure some, some, at some random location in your plant and it trips up the main circuit breaker and then you lose power to the entire plant. So problems like that can be identified um, as, an, as an added benefit when an engineering study is done. But the most important part of the ArcFlash engineering study is it tells us for each piece of equipment what the incident energy is. This means we can determine what is our maximum energy and what is the maximum energy that we wish to protect against. Because folks, remember, not every equipment um, is going to be not every equipment is going to be aligned to commercially available protection. Let me give you an example. There's studies that have been performed where on a main circuit breaker, for example, the arc flash energy is 170 calories per square centimeter. Folks, comfortable arc-rated daily workwear, you're probably looking 75 calories per square centimeter. That's the arc-rated flash suits that's available. You can go up to 100 calories. Now you're starting to become a little bit cumbersome, a little bit heavy. Um, so remember, you got to determine what is the maximum energy you have and what is the maximum energy you wish to protect workers against. And then when we talk about the labels, the minimum requirements for labels is going to be you need to stipulate the voltage, you need to stipulate 
either the incident energy or mention to the worker what type of clothing they, re they require. And then the third mandatory requirement is going to be the arc flash protection boundary. However, for these labels to be useful, we suggest that you provide a little more information. That means come up with some sort of a system where you discuss levels of PPE, talk about what is the equipment name, where is it fed from, what was the date that the label was applied, and folks, all of these can be customized. The label can be something that you can specify, but don't specify this in isolation. Talk to industry experts, talk to consultants, talk to uh, folks who have rolled out these programs and ask them, hey, what worked, what didn't work, right? And your labels are, as I mentioned previously, your labels are gonna tell you whether the daily workwear that you procured, the eight to 12 calorie per square centimeter daily uniform, whether that is adequate or whether you're going to need flash suits as well. Now, in that gap, between what is the maximum calculated uh, incident energy from any piece of equipment versus the maximum PPE that you wish to provide. In that range where your PPE that you have on site is inadequate for the incident energy uh, available from that piece of equipment, then you will not stick a orange warning label, but instead you will use a red danger label. And folks, these are regulated by ANSI um, Z535. And that basically speaks about when do you use a warning label and when do you use a danger label? So it has been observed in industry because folks think, hey, arc flash is so dangerous that it's gonna kill everybody. Folks have gone out and stuck danger labels on every piece of equipment. They've even put out danger labels stating that the energy is less than 1.2 calories per square centimeter. And when you ask them, hey, so folks, why did you do that? And they say, oh, because of the shock hazard. Well, if you can protect against the shock hazard and there has been training, there has been a safety management system in place, there is adequate PPE, then folks, that is a hazard that can be protected, which means that it's a warning label, not a danger label. So please go back and have a look at the systems because some of these may predate your arrival onto site. And I just want you to be aware of, um, do you know, use the right form of communication with your labels as well. Now, we've been talking about, hey, even if you don't know what the energy is, roll out eight to 12 calories per square centimeter. But what I want to mention to you as well is that this clothing does have limitations. So here, what we did was we put a mannequin in a flash suit and we put a mannequin in category two type of clothing, eight to 12 calories per square centimeter. And we hit both of these with the arc flash and the mannequin that had the uh, flash suit on received no burns, while the one with daily workwear received second and third degree burns. Now, although you don't have the ignition of arc-rated clothing, you still have incident energy transmission from the equipment through the body of the worker. And that's where you see these incidents. So be careful about the limitations of daily workwear and the need for um, flash suits in certain instances. Now, once you've hit the first three steps, which was training, the uh, rollout of PPE, the arc flash uh, engineering study, step four is gonna be the written electrical safety program. And folks, this is critical. It's gonna cover your communication of all the OSHA regulations to your workforce. Step five is gonna be your maintenance program. Folks, you can have the best safety management systems. You can have the most beautiful arc flash labels on your piece of equipment. You can have the newest, greatest piece of equipment, but if you have not maintained it, and if that main circuit breaker cannot trip and clear the arc flash energy, 
or clear and protect the worker against electrical shock, all of those safety management systems are gonna fall on their face. So because of that, maintenance needs to take a forefront in electrical safety. One of the most basic and rudimentary forms of maintenance is gonna be a thermal scan. Even folks, even if you don't do anything else at the moment, just start off with a thermal scan. A thermal scan is gonna be able to identify existing problems as well as developing problems at low voltage. Once you get into high voltage, there's gonna be a whole lot more that you can do, but for low voltage, the very basic you can do is an infrared or infrared thermography, infrared scan as they are called. Now, I've also put out a slide here where I've discussed what can you do with transformers, circuit breakers, panel boards, and some of the general requirements. Have a read through that in your own time. And auditing, all right, step six. This is the final step that I'm gonna be talking about in the program implementation. What most of the consensus standards speak about is you wanna hit three different areas. You wanna hit your safety management systems in terms of an audit. You wanna check the worker, inspect the worker, and you also wanna inspect the tasks, all right? So those are the big three. What is your documentations looking like? What are your documentations looking like? What is your worker looking like? And what are the tasks looking like, all right? And, um, Remember, there's document re um, uh, retention requirements for these as well. So you cannot just go out and do a verbal inspection and say, hey, I'm done. No, you need to have a documented program with findings, findings allocated to the right person, due dates, commitments, right? And that's where uh, you start adding value. So just to summarize this, these six steps, training, procurement of daily workwear, the ArcFlash engineering study, written electrical safety program, the maintenance program, and then the auditing program. So with that, we're gonna jump very quickly into continuous improvement. And folks, if you really want some good references, if you really wanna take this continuous improvement ideology and implement it, um, I've provided you with two excellent resources that have developed uh, over time, and it makes great, great, great reading. And one of those papers actually tell us they, they, they provide three different examples on continuous improvement on and the various steps. And I've circled example number three from one of these papers because that's gonna be our focus today. So the basics of continuous improvement stems from quality control. And for those of you who have not read this, I'm not gonna get into super duper detail. I'm gonna hand over to Hugh in the next five minutes or so. Um, so just very quickly, it's called the Plan, Do, Check, Act. And we've evolved that to try and make it um, uh, electricity focused. So, so, so we've created our own wording with regards to this, but I would really strongly suggest that for those of you who are interested in quality control, have a look at um, one of the Ishikawa books. And this was translated by David Liu uh, back in 1985. Very, very interesting book that goes through all of the details. So how do we make this electrically centered? All right. Uh, how do we take the plan, do, check, act, and implement it with regards to electrical safety. Well, the basis of that lies in NFPA 70E articles 110.5 and 110.6, right? And there's, there's these core elements that we speak of, of the electrical safety program, performing the risk assessment, training, accident investigations and incident investigations, audits and maintenance. So let's run through each one of these. Right, very quickly. What's the four-step process? The plan, do, check, act on your electrical safety program. One of the first things is 
please do not do this by yourself. This is not a uh, one-person ban. This is not something that you do in an island. Get together a multidisciplinary team, all right? Once you get a multidisciplinary team, you're gonna get different ways of looking at things, different ways of doing things, and you're gonna get a, a, a procedure, a written document that's gonna to apply to everybody. Train your workforce, um, roll out the program, and then do your three-year uh, program audits perform um, annual supervisory inspection, look at incident investigations, and then that's gonna get you to the question in terms of evaluating your program, are there gaps in my program? And once you find those gaps, use standards, use references, use white papers, attend conferences, and find out, hey, how can we plug this gap? When it comes to training, sure, you can develop your training in-house. Absolutely, you can develop your training in-house, but how do you know what you don't know? Right, And this is why, at least at the beginning, look what other companies have done. What have similar organizations done? Attend conferences, learn about what are the different questions that workers have, that safety managers have, that production managers have. Right, Look at all of those and come up with an idea on how are we rolling out our program and then develop your training and then launch your training. But once you launch your training, go back a year later and ask the folks, hey, um, do you remember this? Can you explain this to me? Or have a look at what are your audits telling you? And then based on that, make the changes to your training program and update, change, periodically, NFPA 70E standard changes once every three years, make sure that you keep up to those changes as well. When we talk, to, when we talk about audits, very interesting, audits also need to be continuously improved. Folks, you can ask the same question every single year and get the same answer every single year. Come up with new creative ways to, to ask these questions. And we provide some guidelines here. You can read through that on your own. Maintenance, I just wanna speak about this very, very quickly. Have a program for high voltage equipment and low voltage equipment. Prioritize your equipment based on age. Establish these KPIs in terms of, yes, I do have high voltage equipment, but if this equipment fails, it's not gonna affect production. But you may have a very cheap piece of equipment that's in the um, uh, core main line of production where if that fails, hey, that's going to make our entire process stand. So come up with some sort of a scoring KPI where you can prioritize your equipment, right? Then there's multiple resources available. You can go online. You can speak to your equipment manufacturer. You can speak to subject matter experts and ask them, hey, what is the cheapest, nastiest thing that I can do right now, something that I can start today that's not going to cost me an arm and a leg. Then you say, well, what's going to cost me a little bit more? Okay, let's budget for that next year. Then what you do is look at um, KPIs in terms of what is my mean time to repair? What is my mean time uh, between failures? Come up with those sort of KPIs and then look at your program. What have we been uh, measuring 10 years ago versus what are we measuring today? And from there, improve your system. And with that, I'm going to hand over to Hugh. And Hugh, I'm just going to try and pass control off to you. And you should have the mouse right now. All right. I think I do. In terms of uh, PPE, I'm not going to go into a ton of detail, but I'm going to give you some uh, opportunities that we've seen in improving programs. And so here, I don't think I've got the uh, control yet. There it goes, okay. So we'll talk about continuous improvement in the area of selection, care, and use. Gonna hit all three of those. 
The one big thing is in selection, making sure you're thinking about multiple hazards when you're looking at your PPE. Uh, a lot of arc flash PPE is great for most applications, but some applications it's not as good for. Uh, chemical is one example. There are uh, suits that are good to put over top of a regular arc flash gear. There are fibers that work better in chemical exposures, not just for protection, but also primarily in holding up against uh, acids or bases or things like that. And so looking at your system, looking at steam, looking at weather, uh, winter wear, we've had people that just throw out uh, arc flash suits and think they're perfectly warm. Well, they're not really designed to be warm. They're designed to be thermally insulated from an arc flash, but sometimes even though they're very thick, they're not really warm. So looking at winter wear that's arc rated and then using a flash suit hood with that. There's lots of different ways to do that. And then also fall protection. We see that some people don't address. Uh, utilities typically do this very well, but there are arc tested fall protection devices. And that's really important to make sure you're looking at your whole program. Uh, when we do audits, and, and I've, I've recently retired, but uh, when I did audits, I would always look at the PPE to make sure that it was correct. And then I would talk to the people and find out, do you wear this? Do you like this? Is there Are there issues? And then try to dig into what those issues are and try to make it. Uh, comfort improvements are always important. Comfort rocks. People love things that are comfortable and you want them to forget about PPE. You don't want them messing with PPE. You don't want them hating PPE. You want them just to think about it as, hey, this is what I wear when I'm at work. Uh, winter options, using winter wears as, as a flash suit, which I mentioned earlier, and then also using rain wear as a flash suit, which is uh, my very first uh, paper was my utility. Uh, we arc rated rain wear materials that were really new at that time back in 1997. And we used them as a flash suit. We just put this arc rated rain wear on every truck and used it as a flash suit over top of our daily wear. Uh, in the summer, look at wicking underwear, look at higher air permeability shirts. There's some that are very low air perm, some are very high air perm, and they make a big difference, especially if you have good wicking underwear underneath to make your workers more comfortable. And also you can take advantage of those layers by getting the layered ratings and more and more companies have those now. Also using cooling technologies, especially when you're wearing a flash suit, there are, um, uh, tornado type uh, cooling uh, devices that you can wear that uh, using air, compressed air, using compressed air, they force that up to the worker. And you can also use those, uh, you can use other type of cooling tech. And there's lots of them out there that are arc rated or arc tested at least. And then using fans in your arc flash suit hoods. It makes such a huge difference using a fan. And that's one of those things that's a quick and easy upgrade. Next time you buy new suits, make sure you go ahead and buy them with fans. They really make a big difference in wearing them. Uh, stay abreast of the standards and your selection. Uh, there's two new standards that have come out. We've had presentations on recently, but not with uh, Safety and Health Magazine. There is a uh, cloth face covering standard that does allow for arc ratings. Uh, and then there's also a arc rated protector glove standard that doesn't have to be leather. Uh, all protector gloves had to be leather up until this standard was released. And because OSHA requires protector gloves, but doesn't require them to be leather, this standard would be perfect to be able to implement in your, your program. And we'll talk a little more detail on that one. Uh, then also IEC, if you're an international, international company, there's IEC glove standards that I'm the project team manager for and writing right now, uh, working with uh, both the end users and the manufacturers uh, and the test labs to make sure we have these similar gloves would be available with IEC labels. 
And then if our respirator standard, there's some, some respirator standard that's working right now uh, in, uh, forget which group in ASTM, but it is for firefighters, but those should help to uh, make opportunities out there. There's lots of research now being done on that because of people needing to wear respirators and also having arc flash hazards. And then we've, we're recently working on updating the arc blast blanket standard, which is a very useful standard if you have applications where you want to shunt arc blast away from workers that may or may not be properly protected. So an important standard to use. Uh, the, uh, I always recommend to use ANSI ISEA 203 and get an arc rating on that fabric. The fabrics are flash fire tested as part of 203. They have flame tests. They have all kinds of details in them, but get them with an arc rating and they're excellent to use over top of uh, gear if you, if you have some minor chemical exposures. So just make sure you think about that and use those. Uh, this is the 3258 standard. Uh, what it's doing is it's going to allow thinner and lighter weight over gloves that you wear over top of your rubber insulating gloves. It'll allow for more dexterity, but also for more grip because they can, like this one, have grip coatings. And, and they're also could be more cut resistant. They allow you to test for cut testing. Before the ASTM F696 standard, all it does is it's a letter of a certain thickness as you go up in class of gloves. But now they don't have to have any leather or like in this case, they can have leather, but they can have other materials like this one I think is uh, lined with Kevlar in one of the options so that you can get better cut resistance. And so this is a brand new standard just off the presses with ASTM. And also it is now being added to the NFPA 70E 2024 version as one of the options. And in NFPA 70E, they don't require you to use a specific standard, but they do require you to have arc rated gloves at certain levels. And so this would already meet 70E, but it will actually be mentioned in the next version of 70E. At least it is in the first edition that's out now. And when we test gloves uh, with the regular leather gloves, they don't have to have a flame resistant cuff. And so in this video, you'll actually see uh, uh, three out of these four gloves did have a non-FR cuff. One of them had some flame resistant treatment and does put itself out. The other one is an all leather cuff with the new 3258 standard, none of these gloves except the leather one and the one that put itself out would be allowed. And so you don't know what you got with the 696 standard because there were some things that were left out of that standard back when it was written back in the 70s. And it really hasn't been upgraded much uh, since that time. I'll go on to the next one. Uh, even daily wear can save lives. If you saw, uh, and this is just one of the things, if you're looking at a continuous improvement thing, putting your electricians in daily wear that's arc rated all day long. There's so many companies that just buy kits and they throw the kits on people. I think the kits are great. It's quick and easy to carry around, but just have an arc rated daily wear. Uh, I've been on many accident investigations now, over 225. And what I found in those accident investigations, the people who die or get really, really badly burned are wearing non-FR gear and they're near or in the arc flash. Uh, most electricians now know that, okay, at certain points when I'm making it safe, when I'm de-energizing, grounding, testing, I need to wear arc rated gear. But there are a lot of accidents where people or even supervisors that are supervising, but are not officially doing the work, but are really nearby, like that example uh, Zahir showed you earlier, our recent uh, video was uh, uh, part of a process we did for a clothing, co clothing company, but it also replicates an accident, two different accidents I've seen, where the building service 
manager was there with an electrical electrical consultant or electric electrician that they had hired to come on site. It's a, a contractor, and the supervisor in one case and the uh, owner or well the, the building manager in the other case. Their clothing ignited and badly badly burned them. One person died, the other person was just badly burned. I'm really for arc rated daily wear. This is an example of not wearing arc rated daily wear, and the suit just wasn't enough to protect it. And here's an example of wearing arc daily wear, arc rated daily wear under that suit. So those underlayers do matter in some of the incidents. Right stuff really makes a difference. Uh, cotton, poly cotton, there is a slight difference in the survivability, but the survivability of arc rated materials, in this case, an aramid, is dramatically different. Almost everybody I've investigated, even if they weren't matched to the hazard, even if they weren't wearing exactly the right PPE, they lived when they were wearing arc-rated materials. And about 50% of the time, you expect to have a person die if they're wearing non-arc-rated materials or be badly, badly hurt. Probability of survival goes, goes uh, uh, with this. Arc-rated exposure with arc-rated clothing, you're about 95% chance of living. Whereas if you have a shirt that catches on fire or a shirt and pant that catches on fire or a coverall that burns off of you, your chances of living go down dramatically and your quality of life changes quite dramatically after 25% body burn. And making sure that the winter wear that you're putting people out, if they're having to work outdoors or they're having to work in cold environments, making sure that winter wear actually protects the workers is really important. And one of these is arc rated, one of these is not, uh, but obviously the one on the right is a little warmer in the winter, but uh, not the way you want to be warm. One of the big improvements, looking at your PPE and asking, has PPE gotten better? And if people are having to wear PPE for five minutes, not a big deal. Uh, probably doesn't matter that much at all, unless they're in a dark environment. But the new hoods that are coming out with the lift front designs, they help prevent fogging, they help be able to defog, uh, they help people to be able to communicate better when they're in uh, electrical working conditions, then they can pull it down when they get ready to do the arc gear. And it's amazing how well these work. We've done a lot of testing on these. There's a lot of other uh, designs that are coming out now that are lift front type materials. But the biggest change is making these gray shields. My original patent on arc flash face shields, which I didn't make any money off of, but it's something I helped patent back in 1997. That original patent had to block a lot of the visible light spectra, and it blocked specifically blue and green so that you couldn't tell what color wires were. These new technologies are just fantastic because they've now got a shield that's up to 20 cows that looks perfectly clear. It is 100% light transmission, but it does block certain wavelengths, uh, not only the infrared and the UV, but it blocks a certain amount of wavelength of light that's not enough that you can visually notice the difference. And up to 100 calories, they're a lot clearer now, and they don't have to be the old green shields. So switching that out is an improvement, and it's a continuous improvement because what this does is it gets you a newer shield, but it also gets you the ability to see the colors, the ability to not need so much extra light. People will take off shields, and I've had two accidents where that happened, where they took off their shield because they couldn't see and then got in the arc flash. So it's really important to make sure people are, are comfortable in their gear and they can wear that gear when they're doing the work. And then another thing we see is 
continuing to make sure that you upgrade your systems. Here we have some high, uh, some high visibility vests. One is arc rated, the other one is not. The one that's not arc rated just melts all over the worker. Making sure you're not just wearing the old FR, flame resistant, you're actually wearing something that has an arc rating or has a flash fire rating that makes huge difference for the workers. And then 